0: Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room, using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices real-world strategies and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what our guest today on the resilient surgeon is todd rose and the topic is fulfillment versus success as we all know so well to become a cardiothoracic surgeon we climb the preordained ladder college, medical school, residency, and finally, after 16 years or so, we become a cardiothoracic surgeon. The standardized training system and the ladder to climb is necessary because, just like the military, our society needs competent and safe cardiothoracic surgeons. But in this process of grinding through the standard path of becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon, we can lose sight of who we are as individuals, of what makes us tick, of what makes us unique, assuming, of course, that we knew any of these things when we started out on this arduous journey. The challenge is that our uniqueness can get buried beneath the rubble of our training and career as a result of subordinating ourselves to the path for so long. It can happen without our conscious awareness, and the buried parts of ourselves can surface from the molten core of ourselves later in life, unless we find a way to bring them into the light of day. In my opinion, subordinating our authentic selves is one of the main drivers of burnout and misery, and not just for our cardiothoracic surgeons, but for all human beings. Our guest today, Dr. Todd Rose, is the previous director of the Mind, Brain, and Education Program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he led the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality. Todd is the author of the best-selling book, The End of Average. Collective Illusions, and Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment, a book that David Epstein calls an ambitious, original work that proposes an entirely new frame for personal and professional development. In his work and in the book Dark Horse, Todd has created an exciting new paradigm around the idea of success. Instead of success being a thing off in the future to be pursued like the proverbial carrot on a stick, he talks about personalized success which is the pursuit of personal fulfillment every step of the way along the road of our one and only wild and precious life. And now I bring you Todd Rose. Well, Todd, welcome to The Resilient Surgeon. It's an honor and a huge personal pleasure for me to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, I'd like to start with going through your journey uh, your journey as a dark horse, because indeed you are a dark horse, uh, and you know how you became a high school dropout and ended up at Harvard. So, if you could kind of give us a sense <laughs> of your trajectory to get the audience to let you know you a little bit and give you a, a, sure. give us a flavor about the dark horse world.
1: Sure. So, I'll I'll, I'll start rambling. You you cut me off. When, when good. <laughs> but, All right. But um, yeah, look, I grew up in rural America, and um, you know, uh, good family, but this my personality just didn't really fit with um an education system that prized not only standardization but conformity in that case mm-hmm. and it, it sort of just kept getting worse and it culminated um i like to say that i i dropped out of high school but in reality they just kicked me out um, <laughs> <laughs> like at it was my um beginning of my senior year and i had a 0. 0.9 gpa um and i i do like to say like i think you have to work really really hard uh, to do that poorly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. 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 You know, Mine was um, very it,
0: close to yours. Mine was very close <laughs> to yours. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it's just, you really have to try. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, they, they ended up saying, look, well, I mean, you can't graduate, so you're just messing around and you need to leave. And, um, and so I ended up, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, found out my girlfriend at the time, who was my wife of 29 years, um, found out she was pregnant and so we mm-hmm. high Things school dropout becoming more <laughs> yeah. of a struggle yeah, yeah it was a good start right um <laughs> and we, we ended up with two kids uh before i was uh 20 and uh bounced around a bunch of minimum wage jobs and I ended up on welfare and you know it was pretty grim and you know i was lucky enough you know my father at the time he said, and, and, and I, I sort of know why he got here, but he was like, I know the problem. You're just lazy. It's <laughs> like, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, right? I, I could see it. But my dad told me, you know, he said, I don't think you're lazy. I just think you have to be motivated all the time. And uh he said, there, he felt like there were a lot of really good jobs for me, but I couldn't get there where I was. And he, he said, you either got to start a business or go to college. Well, you know, I had like $13 in my bank account. So I I don't know anything. And two still, kids. Not, and two yeah. kids. still didn't know anything about business. So I still don't today. Uh, and so, you know, I decided to go to college. I got my GED, mm-hmm. uh, my family cobbled together what money they had. Um, and it was just enough to get me through two terms at Weber State University, open enrollment. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do or be. I just knew I needed to do something different. Mm -hmm. um and it was funny that the best advice my dad ever gave me was you know don't fool yourself right you you know you gotta you gotta buckle down and figure this out but pretty much like whatever works whatever you tried before didn't work (laughs) so yeah you are gonna have to figure out and so what what was interesting and and my journey at weaver state was so instructive uh in, in retrospect I can see the blueprint for my entire scientific career and um, which was out of just grim necessity, I had to figure out what worked for me, even if no, it didn't work for anybody else. So, so really simple things like my dad told me when I first signed up, my uh, counselor said, well, you failed algebra three times, so you should definitely take remedial math. Well, remedial math is the most taken and failed class in college in the United States. Mm -hmm. so that would have been the beginning and end of my college career right yeah Um,
0: more of the same more of the same.
1: yeah so my dad said take take some classes that you are just super interested in because you don't have the study skills right now and because you want to know that information you'll get it so I took I did that for a while I started getting better at realizing that there were certain kinds of learning environments certain kinds of professors that I really clicked with you know basic stuff and you know, slowly started building a, a view of myself. I, I, I started doing better, doing better. If you don't mind, I'll tell you the defining moment for me. Which, no,
0: please, I, uh, these stories are crucial.
1: So, so, just to, the day that I realized that this idea of individuality and context about it's about getting a good fit, right? Um, which does make an appearance in Dark Horse, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. For me, I was sitting in. Um, it was like end of my second year and i was sitting in a big lecture hall for a history class next to my buddy steve and that was a terrible environment for me but i couldn't get out of it and i was complaining to him after class that like this is how awful this was to sit there and listen be lectured at and he said oh no this isn't even close to as bad as what he'd gotten himself into in the honors program Mm -hmm. now for me i didn't even know what the honors program i mean i was a 0.9 GPA high school. I have no idea there. I just assumed honors program was the exact same stuff, just more work. But he was quickly disabused me of that. He said, no, 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 no. There aren't lectures. There's just like these small groups, like no more than like 10, 12 people in a class. He said, there aren't tests. You just write essays. And he goes, I'm not even sure there are correct answers. All we do is debate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, hold on, sign hold me on, up. hold on. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 wait, wait, that's ha- that doesn't even seem possible. That So I was so excited. I impulsively just grabbed my books, shoved them in a backpack and went right up to the top of the hill. Um, the honors program had its own floor in the library. That's where it's housed. Went right up there, went in, told the secretary, a woman named Marilyn Diamond, uh, one of my favorite- These memories the you'll
0: never forget. They're, they're no, just no, so no. important. No, 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 this
1: is so important. And I said, I, I wanna be in the honors program. And she said, well, great. Let's get you in to see the, the director. He, he happens to be here right now. So I went in and sat down and I told him and he was excited about like how proud they were, what they were building. And he said, let's just get this out of the way. We'll get you, your application in. We can get you into classes, you know, this right now. And I said, okay. He said, well, so like, uh, what was your high school GPA? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he asked me my name and, you know, where I went to school. Yeah, yeah I, of course. What's yeah. your high school GPA? And I, this is no kidding. I said um, 0.9. And, and he said, what 0.9? As if I had like <laughs> missed a number, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah. it dawns on me, you know, I, I say 0. 0.9 and um, he was really, really nice about it. He, he wasn't a jerk. He, he says, look, I, you can't be in the honors program, right? And I was so mortified. Like, what? Did, what did I just do, right? This is yeah, so yeah, humiliating. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just grabbing my stuff, apologizing profusely, um, and I get up and, and and leave. And I'm walking out the door, and um, this Marilyn Diamond, the the secretary, she uh, her desk was right by the door. And as I walked out, she actually reached out and grabbed my arm. And she said, hey, listen, I, I overheard the conversation. If you want this, don't take no for an answer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, I said, I didn't know you could do that. Right. And um, so she told me sit down on the couch and not to leave until they let me in. So I did that. And it it, it felt like an entire day. It was probably only a couple of hours. Of, hi, of him coming out and saying, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> like Yeah, yeah, so yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Finally, he says, hey, look, come in here and talk to me. And I, I went in and I said, he said, look, why do you want to be in the honors program? Like, I don't get it. On paper, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And so I told him what I had been learning about myself um, as a person and and the kinds of environments that I felt like really worked for me. And it seemed like this would be perfect. And he said, you know, he, he, he let me in on a provisional basis. He let me choose a class. And He said, if you do really well, I'll let you choose another class and we'll go from there. And what was great is he said, by the way, doing well isn't getting the best grade in the class. He said, I'm gonna ask the professor. And if she says that, like, she can't even imagine this class without you in it, then you can take another one. That kind of thing was kind of great. Nice, but, nice. So so it turns out, it, it, it I was right. It was an unbelievably good fit. So flash forward a couple of years, I ended up graduating as the honor student of the year with a 397 GPA Mm -hmm. and I had gotten into Harvard for my doctorate. And so like I, that was a, I tell that story because there's sort of two things that matter to me and and it'll play out in some of our subsequent conversations. Number one, it taught me a lot about how to think about talent and opportunity even, because I was the same kid, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and, and, and understanding enough of your individuality and finding even a reasonable approximation to a good fit. Suddenly I look extremely talented where I was a throwaway um, just a couple of years earlier. But the second thing, and I think this matters a lot when we think about cultivating dark horses and and not just all following the same path is that like, I worked really hard. I did. And, and it wasn't going to matter if it weren't for Marilyn diamond, Mm -hmm. and what's so funny about that like is it was this profoundly transformative moment for me right like um and just a few years ago before the pandemic i i got an award from weaver state and i I went back to accept it and um
0: lovely lovely
1: yeah and and Marilyn happened to be retiring at that same time and i thought what a great opportunity to tell the same story she's in the audience and just really really tell her thank you so much so i tell it and the dean asks Marilyn to come up. She gets to the microphone, she gives me a hug, and then she says, Well, thank you so much for that story, Todd. But I gotta be honest, I don't remember it. <laughs> and I thought I thought she was saying that I was lying, like it didn't yeah, happen. Yeah. Yeah. But it turns out that she didn't remember it because everybody had a Marilyn Diamond story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's just the way she, she was like up that in the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and yeah. I and I never it it never, it's never. I haven't forgot that which is like these things that we do that that unlock opportunity for other people that are such enormous like enormously impactful things can mean almost nothing to us doing it right we don't realize yes. how much power yes. we have in small ways to do big things yeah. so that was the beginning of that that was a how was that for like a 20 minute uh opening story no, no but I it's go.
0: a it's a perfect <laughs> lead-in and so then you went to harvard and how did you get interested in i mean obviously this played a pivotal role but what was the trajectory to you writing two profoundly influential books the end of average and dark horse
1: well so the the it's funny dark horse comes off of my experience at the end of average and end of average i had gone to harvard (laughs) it's funny i didn't really care to go to harvard i wanted to work with a guy named kurt fisher and Mm -hmm. he was pioneering a new field called the science of individuality which was getting away from the use of group averages and starting to model individuals on their own terms, and with the rise of big data and stuff like that, we were starting to do that. So they led the work in methodologies around like personalized cancer treatment, genetic stuff, all the way to learning and, and even education. Well, mm-hmm. obviously that was that was sort of intuitively appealing to me, right? This idea of yeah. individuality. In, in fact, um, when I was an undergrad, uh, as you know, academic textbook they're so expensive these academic trade books well mm-hmm. Kurt had written a book called human behavior human behavior in the developing brain and i wanted it so badly but it was like 200 dollars. so yeah. that's what i got for christmas one year um mm-hmm. it was it was great but well when i was reading about it uh he, it said he was at the university of denver and i was like this is great i i can there but but in the interim he had gone to harvard so i was like i, I didn't even know where, i didn't know where harvard was so i'm like so that's how you
0: ended up at harvard then
1: yeah Yeah, and i and it was it was crazy because it was just like uh take a chance and um what do you do and so you arrive there and um now i will say like it was about the most fish out of water kind
0: of i can imagine
1: (laughs) yeah uh and and i had a, a number of uh bumpy experiences where you learn um pretty quickly you know you're gonna have to work a little harder and um but but like it was it was wonderful um got to work with Kurt, uh, you know, in this exciting new field, he had just um, founded a a program called the Mind, Brain and Education program, Mm -hmm. actually one of the first interdisciplinary programs in the world. And um, it was it was so exciting. And so I, um, after I graduated, I'm just quirky, but I did a postdoc at the Center for Astrophysics, which was also fun, but probably not <laughs> relevant to this conversation. but <laughs> and then came back to Harvard and became a professor. And one of the one of the proudest things in my uh, academic career was when Kurt retired, they asked me to be the new director of that program. Mm-hmm. So the program mm-hmm. that would had been so important to me. so so I to end of average, you know, As we were working on all these methodologies and insights around human individuality what i kept finding is the people who were the fastest to want to know about it were people who ran big industry things especially in tech social media companies you know Mm uh things like Mm -hmm. amazon where they're like hey we'd love of course we'd love anything that would help me know our customer better get them to buy more stuff. You know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's fine, that's fine. Mm -hmm. What I didn't like was that in the general public, we kept having, we kept, we're almost using like 19th century ideas of who we are. I'm a type A person, you're like, you're not. And Amazon doesn't see you that way. And you're gonna get steamrolled by this, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. So I thought like, you know what, let's write a book on this. And um, I, I was genuinely surprised. Like, I just knew it had to be written. But it became a bestseller, it, mm-hmm. you know. I just, I just did not expect it, um, and I think that, I, frankly, I just think the world was ready, right? I think people. were Yeah, it's the right time. To, absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely. And so I think it just
1: and, it gave a voice to what people were feeling.
0: Yeah, so, and that's the good lead into the end of average because I want to cover some of that in there, and um, you know, I, I just want to pitch the book because if you're interested in the evolution of our education system and factories and how this is played out uh, in its impact on our us as human beings, this is a riveting read to understand the history of that entire thing. And we're going to go through a little bit of that today. But I thought it'd be good for you to take us through some concepts that are present in the end of, of average, uh, you know, and talk about a little bit of the history. Ketelet, the as you said, the mm-hmm. Isaac Newton of social physics and Taylor, yeah. Fre- you know, Frederick Taylor, right? uh yeah and and the one best way man and and the air force story which is really riveting
1: yeah so you know when i started thinking about writing the book i i felt like you know this idea of average and this standardized world we just were born into it it like our parents were born into it their parents were born into it so it's like something you don't really even question it just you just assume it's natural so water you like, swim in
0: almost yeah. right exactly yeah.
1: and and i felt like if you're gonna if you're gonna dismantle that concept you've got to show people where it started this mm-hmm. this is not truth this was just made up right like mm-hmm. and yeah. and so it was fun to do um i'm a sucker for good stories and um uh first of all to to you know the opening of that book i i just couldn't believe my luck right like um they had just uh, declassified uh, the the the, re- the report by uh, Gilbert Daniels. Really? And, yeah, this was it was it was my lucky day. Uh, and you know the story was, you know the the first time we figure out that averages really don't work, and it's you know coming out of World War II, the Korean War, and it was the moment in the Air Force where we went from propeller planes to jet powered aviation. Like it's a mm-hmm. big jump, and we spent a ton of money expecting that there would be like huge increases in performance, you know, all this stuff. And they were getting the exact opposite. Like- Performance like, I mean, by was, the
0: pilots. By the yes, pilots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so so, so yeah.
1: on almost any measure, it was just so much worse. And so they had gone the rounds for a couple of years trying to figure out who to blame. <laughs> like, And it wasn't the technology, it wasn't the flight instructors. And they, 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 funny enough, they actually started blaming like, well, maybe the pilots just don't have the right stuff anymore. But um, so what they had landed on, it was kind of funny is, well, you know what? It's actually the design of the cockpit. And so mm-hmm. the way they had originally designed cockpit was that they took the average dimension of every body size that mattered. Turns out it's only, you know, not that many, like 10 dimensions, you know, like uh, like chest circumference, you know, uh, Shoulder torso width, length. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and the idea was like, design the cockpit around the the, the average of those dimensions and it'd be good enough well they had started thinking well wait a minute we've gotten bigger as americans since they did that in like Mm -hmm. world war one and which was definitely true and so the idea was like well we've seen a better average and so they hired this kid gilbert daniels who was actually a harvard uh, Harvard. undergrad yeah Yeah. and um poor kid like what was really great was it was so wonderful as i actually got to talk to him he was really. Oh, he boy. since How passed cool. away. Yeah, I was, yeah. and I reached out, and, and so he he's he was a real recluse. He actually left the military. He was in the botanical sciences, um, and but I said like yeah, he I, was a
0: fish out of water in the military, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: yeah. he talked to me, and I said, "Listen, I don't know if you remember this work you did." And he said, "Oh, I remember. It was the worst job I ever had." <laughs> and so his job was like specifically to go around to all these Air Force bases with a tape measure. And they had about just over like 4,000 pilots. And his job was to measure them on like all these, dem- I think it was like a hundred demands, some absurd amount of things to calculate a new average. I mean, this is his job. And he said, but the problem is, is since he's the only guy doing it, he said it was pretty obvious that he was seeing a lot of variation and he starts questioning like, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't I don't know that this average is that good. So he gets permission from the generals to do a side project, which is how many of these 4,000 some odd pilots who were literally picked because they fit into the cockpit to begin with, how mm-hmm. many of them are average on these dimensions uh, that we're using? So he does that. He does the calculations by hand. It's kind of brutal. And he figures out that literally nobody, not a single pilot. No one was average, no one. I mean, it it was bad. It was really, really bad. And he's like, well, here's your problem. (laughs) Like it was one thing when you had a really, really poorly designed cockpit and you're going to the speed of whatever propellers are, but -hmm. now you're going close to the speed of sound (laughs) like life or death decisions are split second. And that design flaw is manifesting. And what's really cool is that to their credit, the air force and the military in general, which you kind of think of as the most conservative institutions. Right, right. They pivoted really fast and they banned the use of averages in design. They actually implemented uh, flexible cockpits, that kind of stuff. And in fact, the entire field of human factors and ergonomics actually comes right out of that stuff. Right out of that,
0: yeah. Kind of yeah. cool.
1: So that's the opening, right? But like, the thing is, is the better question that I had and where I started the book was, why did we ever think this was a good idea? Like, mm-hmm. if, if, if anyone watching or listening, just you sort of intuitively think why would I think the average of a group would be representative of everybody in the group? Well, just briefly, so I, I went looking for, like, when did this start?
0: Yeah, where, where did this come from? Yeah. Right? And it yeah. turns
1: out it's a Belgian astronomer named Adolf Ketelet. <laughs> and it's <laughs> in the early 1830s, a little bit before, Belgium just like rest of europe is undergoing pretty profound transformation um you're really leaving the era of kings and divine right you're starting to play around with you know better representation um and you're starting to get access to some of the first demographic data what they would Mm -hmm. you know census Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff right so ketele as an astronomer so in astronomy there is this idea you know of the error curve which is actually really true so it's like If you're trying to measure something celestial and you have like 10 different astronomers in different locations with slightly different instruments doing the same thing well which one of them is right and it turns out that as long as there isn't any any sort of systematic barrier or systematic uh, bias it it turns out just taking the average of all of their measurements is usually a better approximation of the
0: approximation yeah yeah
1: because it's actually not untrue right um so So Ketalei, knowing that and had been using that, he starts seeing some of the census data that's emerging and no one quite knows what to do with it. Like what a jumbled mess. And he sees in particular um, a weird stat on Scottish soldiers' chest circumference (laughs) and he decides to plot it. And he's like, ooh, look, a bell curve, just like I see in the error curves we use. So he makes this leap, which is pretty remarkable. He says, well, wait, if the average is the true thing in astronomy, when I'm doing measurement, then maybe the average is the true thing when it comes to human beings, like a platonic ideal. He, I mean, no. he really, it's its crazy. He writes this out. He's like, so maybe the average is real. And we're all basically just knockoffs. Nature was trying to get us to all be average. And for whatever reason, we're all just kind of a little bit short of the mark.
0: yeah and the goal the the ideal is to be average that was his notion yeah Yeah. he
1: didn't he didn't really make any distinction between he didn't think you should be better than average or worse that that was all error which by the way is really really closer to the truth there in terms of what the error curve is right it's just error but um in fact it's funny he called the further away from average you got he called it monstrosities (laughs) so yeah Yeah. the kinds of terms
0: that they used my god yeah it's pretty crazy so he
1: thought he thought the 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 goal of of social physics is what he was trying to invent. You just ignore individuals. It's too messy, doesn't matter. Focus on the average person and design policies for that and then do things that get people to be more average. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he coins it. And by the way, what's really funny is he's like ridiculed from day one. Like there, there was a term um, that they coined for it that I tried to use in the book, which I'll have to give you a, a side story. He It was called Averagearianism, right? Yeah, you're average Um, And this was like the first sort of response article to that book. They were like, it's 1835. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Um, I thought I was gonna be clever. Just a quick side note of thinking, well, what if I could resurrect that term, right? For all the people that believe in averages. I mean, there it was. It was the first thing that used. First of all, it didn't really work, but um, it got worse than that. Uh, maybe about a year in, in the book, I get this panicked call from my publicist. You are blowing up in the... Uh, neo-nazi community oh no i I was like what what
0: i can i can see i can see how they would twist that into their world yeah
1: so they showed so these twitter responses where they were like listen we're not all the same as Aryans. Like we, we all have slight differences. There's no such like. There's no such thing as an average Aryan. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and they kept citing the book, and I had to go to be like, "Look, you, look, you idiots! Like, no, you're all really yeah. bad people." <laughs> the yeah, team. yeah. So, so I learned my lesson. You, don't try to name things. But it takes off though, because insurance companies figure out that they could use this data on averages. To make better estimates of risk, because they don't care about any one person, right? You amateurize risk, so that really took off, and it just it just went into society like gangbusters. But it, you know, it's it sort of lays. Well, we we can circle back to Galton too, who's a piece of work. But but this general concept kind of just sits in academic or you know insurance circles for a while until really you get to the second industrial revolution and and it starts to be put into action. Here, here in the u.s
0: yeah and then you know the with the spread of uh factories and the standardization you know and you talk about in the book the one best way so they use those averages and they create the perfect you know that they 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 make the man adapt or the person adapt to the system you know yeah in the factories and that but then comes along as you as you so beautifully write in the in the book uh galton and a Thorndike for education and so they agree with the averages in a general sense, is he right? But they changed the perspective on it. And yeah. that's what's very interesting here. And and it infuses our entire world to this day, what they did.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, Ketelay, for as wrong as he was, wasn't a bad guy. Like, mm-hmm. he actually really was trying to create stability and prosperity for the widest number of people. Um, Galton, on the other hand, was this aristocrat. In england
0: mm-hmm. who
1: really wasn't happy with the rise of like poor people wanting to vote wanting to have more of a say he thought this was the right. end of society as he knew it which probably was the end of his society as he knew it. right yeah um he's a math whiz so he's the guy like he invented a bunch of statistics that we all use to this day things like correlation and regression and stuff oh, I like that. Know that
0: yeah yeah. Interesting. He, he, yeah
1: he invented percentiles mm. so because he he said, Oh, Cetelet was a brilliant person. He just got one thing wrong. Averages aren't good. Averages are mediocrity. And what you want to do is to know how far above or below average you are. So he turns that error into real meaningful insights. And he he's part of the so, supposed.
0: Um, it. Suppose it supposed. It. Well, he's yeah. he's
1: the leader of like the eugenics movement, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. there, there's a biological superiority, inferiority. Uh, based on race, gender, other demographics. And so he just needs, he needs a way to measure and rank people to be able to fulfill his, what he called artificial selection rather than Mm -hmm. natural selection. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's it's pretty dark, right? Like he's, so he builds all this stuff and it gets pulled into the US on the back of IQ tests. Uh, And so you mix this sort of really terrible eugenic idea of of inherent superiority inferiority with a test that first of all that was developed was not meant for that Mm -hmm. um and it just it just it was the spirit of the times it gets infused in it it gets imbued with the idea of that it's science and it just seeps in and and the thing is is that it's not until we're starting to deal with like factories and stuff that that stuff starts to become mainstream and we can talk about that with frederick taylor
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Yeah, go right on to Taylor and Fondike and, yeah. and how this whole thing evolved. Yeah, because it, yeah, it's so, really incredible.
1: Yeah, so so it's like, basically, Frederick Taylor, it's like my personal nemesis. Like my goal in life is to <laughs> get rid of all Taylorism in society. And I think he's, he's the person whose shadow we all live in and almost mm-hmm. nobody even knows. Even knows this, it, yeah. yeah, this guy invented the term manager. He, um, he he basically starts out in business where he realizes the fundamental problem is that we give too much self determination and autonomy to people, like and that basically the way that you could get to greater prosperity was to take agency away from people and like I mean no kidding and he he would have said this point blank you mm-hmm. treat them as widgets mm-hmm. like he and you know you think about a fundamental precept of democracy. Was always that these institutions we create are meant to serve the people. <laughs> like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he he's not even shy about it. He flat out said, that has to change. Um, in the past, people were first. In the future, the system has to be first. Mm-hmm. And so he he believes off of averages and rank that for anything you want to accomplish, there's always only one right way. I mean, that was that was the thing. And that's it. Figure, one right way, can,
0: one best way. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, it, it was it was pretty crazy. It got down to like literally with a stopwatch, they would measure the amount of steps and sequences that you did to like move pig iron was one of those mm-hmm. famous ones. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, okay, this is the best way and then force everybody to do it. To and, adhere to it, yeah. Yeah, and he would say like quite literally say, I don't want your initiative. I don't want your thoughts. I want you to do what you're told to do it as quickly as possible. And so he implements this. It sounds like... How would this happen? Well, he wrote a book called Scientific Management. Um, it Scientific was, he, Management, yeah. Yep, he was the leader mm-hmm. of the efficiency movement, which just swept the U.S. and then the world. And it was just, efficiency is good, but it should have never been the ultimate value. Like, it, yeah. it never should. Like, um, But here we go. And, and you know, he, like I said, he invents the, the concept of a manager. He really d- defines roles for everybody. There's a task you do, there's one right way to do it. You're paid like to follow those rules. Um and efficiency is the name of the game. Well, individuality
0: has no role here. Oh all. no, he like he yeah. thought it
1: was ridiculous. Ridiculous yeah. that we we talked about these kind of concepts of individuality right. and and self-determination. And look, it, it's a bit like um when people were like, "Hey, China's doing better with COVID." Early on, like right, if you can literally weld people's doors shut, yeah. you might be able to. You know, do like, better, like yeah. yeah, like but I don't think that's the mark of a good society, right? Like mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so yes, if you strip everyone of their dignity and turn them into robots, you're gonna get an efficiency boost for sure. You know that that that's fine, and so we got something out of it. That's true, but obviously, when the economy is structured that way, it's only a matter of time before things like education have to respond. Mm-hmm. And so you you see that flow in with like Edward Thorndike who was the father of educational psychology. <laughs> it was it was pretty bad. Like you'd think for someone who cared a lot about education that you you sort of imagine that people would be like, yeah, and kids have potential and our job is to educate them as citizens and like, you know, nurture them. No, he was like there's 10% of people that are talented the goal of education is to select the best from the rest. And so he saw literally when they were creating kindergartens, they called them the Ellis Islands of intellect. Huh. They, weren't, they weren't meant to cultivate. They were meant to start screening out as screening. fast as possible. Wow! And wow. he said, when the high school movement happened in the US, he said, this is a colossal waste of time. The genetic intelligence of people is not high enough for most people to even finished high school. So this this is these are the people that are running the education system. So that's where you get the the infusion of things like, well, basically what you see in education today. There are literally Still bells today. That, yeah, yeah. bells to tell you when the shift's over, so to speak, right? Your yeah. math's just over. Now we're going to do English. Yeah, um, no, the, was, the
0: factory was imported right into schools, you know, yeah, from and, an efficiency and, standpoint, and, all that.
1: Yeah. Well, and the thing is is they they just you had a bunch of farm kids who weren't used to being told what to do and you had to teach them how to obey it, it look and, and look there was like there were some benefits I, I don't mean to be like as down it but just be clear everybody bought into this like once you accept that there's such a thing as an average person that you could standardize society that it was okay to do that uh that efficiency was the goal and that our economy was built that way it just makes a lot of sense that this is how you do it and so this just sweeps into every aspect of society and right now we're living at the end of that era and and it's just everything about the way our work is structured our schools are structured our lives are structured are still based on this idea that there's an average person and that we can standardize around that
0: and the separation in terms of superior inferior It's not explicitly talked about, but yet it's Mm -hmm. there in everything that we do. I mean, my son, they asked him, they think his daughter or my granddaughter, you know, is special. I mean, she's and they wanted to know if they should put her in a special class for, you know, talented children. And that's all fine and good. But yet that ranking is is still permeating everything. You know,
1: what's what's really funny is um, Benjamin Bloom, who's a really great Uh, Mm -hmm. scientists in the 80s developed mastery-based learning they did a study of gifted and talented classes to look at like well what's the best predictor of who does well in them turns out that the the iq tests and related tests they use are are abysmal predictors like really Uh bad the single best predictor was to tell the kid what was involved and let them choose in or out of it themselves (laughs) there you go yeah that's it but that's the individuality thing yeah Yeah. 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 that doesn't fit with with the way we want to do it yeah, yeah,
0: And I, I want to just highlight, you you alluded briefly to it did bring value, this averages and all these things that happened to standardization. Because you point out very clearly in the book, at the time that these notions came in, you know, what was the, the rate of high school graduation? Like 6%. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Uh, you know, people were poor. There was a burgeoning, growing population, a ton of immigrants who were uneducated. And so, in a sense, I could see from a perspective that we need to get this systematized, you know, yeah, so we can deal with this.
1: And I would even say, I'd even go so far as to say, I'll bet you if I lived back then, I would have been an advocate of this standardized system.
0: Yeah, right. Because given the circumstances.
1: Yeah, because because back then it wasn't a question of whether we could individualize, say, education for everybody. The the, the question was either you gave a standardized education to the masses or only a few people have got a good education so that that, then that to me that's a no-brainer in the trade it was a
0: grim necessity almost as you said yeah yeah and also
1: also it it was not obviously wrong right averages were obviously wrong then right we didn't have the evidence that that is demonstrably false so so like fair fair enough so my my bigger gripe is we it did cost us a lot it cost us more than we probably should have given up Mm -hmm. and that was bad enough when when you had to make the trade-off it's unacceptable now what we don't have to make that trade-off
0: yeah right the necessity is apparently gone for most of us yeah so then that leads into and you talk about epochs i don't know if i pronounced that correctly but you know the, the the standardization age and the standardization covenant which i'd like you to talk about and we're in we're leaving that epoch, as you say, and head, heading into the age of personalization. maybe you could tell us about the standardization covenant and kind yeah. of what you mean by that.
1: Yeah so so think about like it's pretty simple, which is, look, all societies operate on paradigms, which are just assumptions we're making about people and, mm-hmm. and the way the world works, and then mm-hmm. all the behavioral implications of that. So for for about a hundred years, we've operated from, some version of what I'd call the standardization covenant and reality, I think it's more like a paternalism paradigm of mm-hmm. like, okay, listen, um, here's, here's the game under the standardization covenant, right? We're all going to do the same things more or less the same way for the same kind of goal. Um, and your charge is to try to be the same as everybody else, only better. Right? Only like, better. Yeah. yeah. Which is funny, right? Cause you think about <laughs> like in school, you take the same classes, but you got to get a better grade. Right. You're going to try to go to college. Okay, but it's not enough to go to college. You got to go to the best college. And then you're going to go to the job we have a career ladder. And it's just like we're all chasing this thing. Um, that I think we now have enough sort of like we've gone around the rat race long enough with multiple generations where you realize, you know what, the things they promised don't really they don't really show up. And mm-hmm. um, and so what we've seen over and over again now is. In field after field, where we start to challenge that, or at least question wait, do averages really work? Um, you know, it's not surprising that besides the Air Force, the places where that's happened the quickest are in places of life and death. So, precision medicine, you know, you, you think about like colon cancer, second or third most lethal and diagnosed cancer. Well, for a long time, we thought there was one pathway.
0: One pathway. Yeah.
1: yeah. Like mut- mutations, da, 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 and precursor lesion, you're often running. What is this well? It turns out there's three stable pathways. Mm-hmm. And that one that we thought on average represents a pretty small percentage of people. And you right. can see the sort of moral problem with that, obviously, right? You're condemning mm-hmm. a lot of people to death. And so not surprisingly, physicians with with their their oath, that's not okay. Um, And so as we got access to individualized data, those are the first things to go. Uh, We still got a long way to go, but there's progress there. We've seen it in nutrition. We've seen it in education. Um, Mm -hmm. Once we could see what learning looked like, and I think technology was quite valuable for that, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And so we're now to the point where, like, and we we do a lot of uh, polling on this. Like, I don't, there, there are very few people left that truly believe in, in an average-based world. And the easiest way I can get that people to, to see that is you give them a scenario where God forbid you get cancer and I can give you the gold standard average-based treatment. I mean, the best of the best or molecular fingerprinting and precision treatment. And you just mm-hmm. ask people, which one are you choosing?
0: It's a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, like yeah. there's something deep inside us that recognizes we don't have to be yeah. snowflakes but something about our distinctiveness does matter. Yeah. And so we're seeing that all over the place. And, and now the question is what comes next, right? Like what happens now that we have the ability to do personalization at scale? And, you know, I, to me, the thing I'm obsessed about and the thing that my think tank is focused on is, you know, you just having personalization doesn't mean you end up with a better society like authoritarian societies are using this personalization just just like we are, right? Mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. control people even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're obsessed with how you how you harness human individuality both for personal fulfillment and collective prosperity. Collective
0: it, prosperity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What, what are, yeah, what are the institutional conditions that we have to have? What are the cultural conditions? What are the mindset conditions? And so a lot of like the books that I write are primarily about like mindset, like how, how do we have to think as people to get Mm -hmm. out of this old paradigm and get into the new one
0: yeah so i want to highlight uh the standardization covenant in the age of personalization and why i think this is germane to our listeners our cardiothoracic surgeon listeners you know the standardization covenant as you point out a covenant is a solemn binding agreement uh and if you follow that agreement you know success Will be yours, right? And I, I've, I've got this obviously memorized because it's so important. And success, as measured by typical things—wealth, status, position, right—usual sort of external metrics. Uh, what you're talking about here is achieving fulfillment. And you know, cardiothoracic surgery and the development of a surgeon in any capacity, in many ways, is the ultimate sort of standardization covenant. You know, mm-hmm. you go to college, you go to medical school do this, uh, then go to residency, subordinate yourself completely to that entire process, which is what happens. And when you are done, the path will be yours. You will be an attending and you can practice medicine. And and even beyond that, when I went into an academic career, the standardization subcovenant, if you will, was, you know, okay, research, patient care, and education. Those are the three things you got to tick all boxes Mm -hmm. and, you know, you'll become a professor. And of course I ticked all the boxes, but I didn't like doing a lot of those boxes at all. In fact, some of them I hated. And I I categorically spent too much time on too many things that I couldn't stand and that I could have used my energy for both for my own personal fulfillment and for the benefit of the specialty, you know, that and I think that this kind of stuff is lost on a routine basis. But I, I give all that for a contextual, you know, uh, call out to my colleagues but for you also to tell us about fulfillment and what that is, that's different than success and well, what that crucial difference is.
1: Yeah, here's what's really funny. So this came about, right, for from this Dark Horse book, which just to give a little context to get to fulfillment. So, you know, after, on end of average, I had, I had profiled several companies that I thought were doing a pretty interesting job dealing with individuality and, you know, meeting with the founders, visiting these places, I kept running into like super interesting people that were doing cool jobs. And then when I would talk to them that had these really, really wacky backstories, I'm like, yeah. How did you, how did you like go from there to there? That, but that wasn't really part of the book, right? So it was more like in the back of my mind, like that was interesting. So and that's so brewing
0: when, as you're doing that work, that's brewing yeah, around, and, and, yeah.
1: And so then, and then, end of average becomes a bestseller. And my dean at the time was like, hey, cool, keep doing stuff, right? And I was, um, I was actually already um, thinking about uh, leaving Harvard at the time. And they, they, had, they had convinced me to stay for a little while longer. Um, and he's like, we'll give you some money to do whatever project you want to do. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I, I'm kind of curious about these people that sort of no one sees coming. And I, I assumed that, that somebody had studied them and i couldn't find anything really systematic on it and then i realized i don't even know what questions i'm asking i just want to understand so in per, to be perfectly honest it was just nothing but my own curiosity and my calling uh-huh. we uh-huh. were like and so we were all quat people in terms of our research my my background's in dynamical systems and so i, was, I i'd never done any qualitative research but we realized Maybe we should just listen for a minute, Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it turns out, lo and behold, my 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 colleague who worked on this with me was a computational neuroscientist, and we were both like, "Hey, it turns out you can learn a lot just listening to people." Surprise, surprise! (laughs) Listening to
0: their stories, yeah, yeah,
1: amazing. So, so we had studied hundreds of people from all walks of life who met some criteria. The way we sourced it, where they had to be like objectively good at what they did right mm-hmm. so anybody in that space would be like yeah they they are incredibly good at what they do and then they had to have sort of a non-traditional background right and then i was like let's talk and then it was like word of mouth spread like and going in i'll, I'll be honest i was completely wrong i wanted to know like what i thought it was going to be a personality type that like you you had to be almost like a richard branson or something someone uh-huh. that loved to uh-huh. buck the system because because uh-huh. sir richard just he gets off on that then that, that, it is just like go the other way and stick your finger in everybody's eyes and like you're yeah. gonna like that yeah and it was very quick to find out that that just wasn't true that, that they were all over the place in terms of their personality and what was funny is is we kept asking them about how they got good at things and almost to a person early on they wanted to talk about how they figured out what they loved mm. and it that what was terrible is like some of them start talking about fulfillment and i'm like i don't i don't want that to be true like this is so squishy like what am i yeah, supposed fuzzy, to do with that touchy feely yeah. fulfillment oh, the worst yeah, yeah. the worst i'm yeah. <laughs> like like you want to talk about, about mastery, success here yeah yeah, yeah, mastery. yeah yeah and what's interesting is so then you're like okay but they keep using words like fulfillment and purpose and meaning and dah, dah, dah. and at some point you have to like at least like dig into that and so i i then thought well maybe they're just it's almost retrospectively like, you know, they're trying to piece it together. Yeah. Yeah. And like, oh, it was all about fulfillment. So we started asking about like how, how they made those decisions. It turns out like what they had in common. And, and I would say, just to modify one thing you said, like I've come to appreciate that it, it's not fulfillment instead of success. Although that's how I saw it then. It, it's really fulfillment as success. Yes. And by that, yes, by yes. that we mean in the old sort of covenant, standardization covenant. It does kind of go like this, the game, which is do what we say, do it really well, like achieve excellence on our terms, and sort of you'll be happy on the back end, right? Like, and so it we grind and do all this stuff and it's miserable. And you get to that moment whether it's tenure, <laughs> like or this, and you're like, so this many people it? you know, yeah, so many people you <laughs> know are like objectively amazing at what they do, and they're absolutely miserable.
0: Yeah. And right? that that was me at one point.
1: Was, yeah, like, right? Like, and yeah. so, so what, what became pretty interesting about these folks is that what they had in common was from a very early stage, they were saying, look, I'm going to pursue fulfillment, right, which is achieving things that matter to you, even if nobody else cares about them. And what you kept seeing is, this seemed to be a pretty reliable path to excellence, right, which just flips the script a bit. Flips and so, the script. Yeah, and and I still thought it was kind of interesting, but not like book-worthy, because I'm like, well, nice, good for you, but is it so idiosyncratic, like how you did it? It's it's not worth, yeah. Yeah, because like I didn't even think of myself as a dark horse, believe it or not. I just knew, I, and I just thought like, until the book came out, if someone said, should somebody follow your path? I would have said, absolutely not. Like, Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. was so lucky, so idiosyncratic. I don't know what the general sort of takeaway is, but out of these hundreds of people, you start seeing this pattern emerge about the things that they know and they were using to make decisions that, in my mind, made this sort of dark horse path, this pursuit of fulfillment and the achievement of excellence, uh, an actual really reliable path. And so then it felt like, well, this is something people need to know. And and I felt like it was something that I would even and have advocated for my own children.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're, and let's talk about what what is a dark horse?
1: Yeah, so look, basically, right, like, as I kind of started mentioning earlier, they're just people who end up achieving extraordinary success, but nobody sees them coming, right? Mm -hmm. They just seem to almost just appear out of the blue, right? Um, And so it's, what's funny is, is in the study, I sort of assumed that dark horses would be basically like me people who are complete screw-ups <laughs> and then, uh-huh, and then uh-huh. get their act together and then are, are, do reasonably well, right? But what was fascinating is it kind of split 50-50, which is like, yeah, there, there were a decent chunk of people like that, but there were equally as many people who started out pursuing the standardization covenant, and they're really, really good at what they do, right? So like yourself, and and then they have this epiphany right like where it is like i am not happy i am yeah. not fulfilled and they'll make these like what seemingly 180 pivots into stuff they're like wait how how did you everybody's go scratching
0: 80- their heads yeah. yeah
1: yeah it makes no sense yeah. and then they're really good at that and you're just like and it seems like voodoo right like how or, or just dumb luck and so we have this curious relationship with them where we're like that's kind of amazing yeah. you must be remarkable uh, but there's nothing for me to learn from that right it's an outlier um,
0: it's an outlier yeah it's one, yeah an end of one
1: yeah that's right yeah, and so yeah. i think what what we tried to do in the book which i was really proud of is no look actually there there's a handful of things that they know that make this reliable and that is more generalizable than we think
0: yeah and you really did a beautiful job of parsing that out and you know, I hate to say it, but it's almost like a dark horse covenant, but I'd say a dark horse set of principles is probably the better way to, would you agree with that? I would, I would. Yeah, yeah. So then let's talk about fulfillment, because I think that definition is important here before we get into the dark horse principles. What is it?
1: Yeah, look, so to me, it boils down to something very, very simple, which is fulfillment isn't like contentment, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's achieving on the things that you prioritize in life again even if no one else cares and the reason this is important is there's a lot more in that definition than than it seems at first you have to know what it is you truly prioritize mm-hmm. you really do and i can we can talk about a lot of the research we have right now it's just it's remarkable how individual we are there and then you have to actually achieve you, it's not enough to just be like, oh, I know who I am. And it's yeah. not about just flitting around, accomplishing nothing. Um, you got to work. Not,
0: yeah, you got you gotta gotta
1: go to you gotta work. You got to go to work. And so then the question is like, how do I know who I am and, and what I really care about? And what's the best way for me to convert that into something productive? Mm-hmm. And so that's, to me, that... That's why I think of fulfillment as actually now, I went from hating the word when they were telling it to me the first time to thinking it's it's a pretty rigorous concept that um, is a lot harder than people think to, to get. Yeah, no, but it's,
0: and uh, it 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 makes sense to me too. And I would have thought fulfillment is a fuzzy sort of touchy feely word before. But, uh, you know, now with my own personal experience and doing the work that I do now, which I love, I mean, it's, it's literally you get up and you're kind of like, I, I want to get at it, you know, isn't that uh, great? it's really fantastic uh it's what life is all about for me literally and what
1: me too and like i am so grateful like you know making decisions using this these principles yeah you know when i left harvard which i can't believe that i would do but it just made made sense I'm just living the dream like I, i get up every day and get to do stuff that i love and what i think is really powerful about it is it's not always fun right this is why no. i think it's like no, this is like, not a
0: boatload of fun and games no no you will be work. happy
1: sometimes and you, yeah. it is hard work and and so fulfillment can be really difficult along the way but the fact that you're doing things you care about makes that struggle productive yeah. and and it makes the payoff so so valuable right yeah. and so it's not just happiness right it's it's um and um and so anyway so i i think that You know, what I get excited about is, I think, when you think about the world we have now, especially in developed countries, but, like, really increasingly around the world, like, with the advent of technology and AI, which everybody loves to talk about now, which I'm already getting sick of, but, like, the the truth is, is that it's not going to cannibalize all the work. It's going to unlock all these opportunities for more and more people to truly do things. To
0: do things, I
1: but but Yeah, but then the thing is, is, when that is that world comes, if you don't understand what it means to know yourself as an individual, if you don't understand what it means to pursue fulfillment, it's you're not going to be able to do it no, right? and no, And you'll,
0: so you'll still be stuck,
1: yeah. And I worry so much about we think about this sort of inequality in the world in a material sense. I think it's going to pale in comparison to when there are people who are raised from the jump to know how to do this. Mm -hmm. how to how to ride this wave and actually live incredibly fulfilling lives and and there's going to be a whole class of people who are the last people educated in the standardization covenant and they're literally brainwashed into seeing themselves as cogs at a time when that's not even valuable anymore
0: right right right. like
1: i think i think that that it can create more disparities yeah yeah i think that's going to be the game right um
0: interesting well so Let's go, you know, you talk and we didn't talk about jaggedness, but I maybe you can talk about that in the process here. But you you have four principles that you outline that the dark horse mindset has. The first one is know your micromotives. The second one is know your choices. Mm -hmm. Third, know your strategies. And then fourth, this is going to be a challenge for some, ignore the destination. All right. And (laughs) that that is fabulous. And I, I can I'll tell you my story on that when we get to it. But I'd like you to just at least briefly talk about, you know, one of the things that we all, there's 7.8 billion people on the planet, right? And we all know, it's it's always been a miracle to me that we have so many people and yet everybody's face pretty much is unique, right? Yeah. Right there. That should be a signal to how unique each of us is, despite the fact that we are common human beings. You know, we have that commonality but there's dramatic differences. And that's that jaggedness mm-hmm. that you talk about. So tell us about jaggedness and well, then dip into micromotives.
1: Yeah. Isn't it funny if you think about it, like if you buy into evolution, mm-hmm. like that's just two things, right? It's selection, but it's actually diversity. Like yeah. there, there'd be nothing to select from. So even yeah. at that yeah. core level, like, like human individuality and then population diversity is the is the one irreducible thing
0: yeah, in the yeah yeah and
1: we can pretend like it doesn't matter but pretending doesn't make it so right yeah, and no, that's right so so what's interesting is this jaggedness principle is is really simple and while the science of individuality has other principles that are also important um mm-hmm. with respect to context and and pathways yeah, absolutely in terms of the temporal
0: yeah yep.
1: if you want to just dispel the idea that there's any st- idea of like an average person or one right way to do something all you need is this jaggedness principle which by the way in the science it's actually called multi-dimensionality with weak correlations but that that's just <laughs> like, which makes like, sense
0: to me but i, I yeah. Jagged. We're yeah jagged yeah people but jaggedness
1: are, yeah. like like i'm like yeah. you know what do you do but um so it's just simply this any human characteristic that uh, uh, that matters is always multi-dimensional and it turns out those dimensions are not correlated with each other like we actually think. So So body size, go back to the Air Force, good example. Height is one-dimensional. And when it's one-dimensional, it means that there will be an average. That average will be meaningful, right? And you can actually rank people in terms of height. Body size is not one-dimensional, right? Like the Air Force in the United States to this day keeps it. It's called the Ansar database that comes out of uh, Gilbert Daniels' work. They currently track Body size for military stuff, I think it's 147 dimensions. Okay. So even if you just take like the top 10 dimensions of body size related to cockpit design stuff, what you just find is look, it turns out that the tallest person you know is probably not the heaviest person you know. Mm-hmm. Right. If you just think mm-hmm. about it, you're like, mm-hmm. right. In fact, it probably more likely to be skinny. Right. But yeah. and yeah. so it, it turns out this isn't an anomaly. Every single person, if you map body size, is going to have this jagged profile which is they're going to be on the high end of a curve on some dimensions they're going to be in the middle like, on others. like
0: arm length or belly mm-hmm. circumference and then others they'll be
1: everybody
0: Ev- well, everybody
1: happens. yeah everybody and this wasn't just the, the military um so in canada actually the retail association did this about 10 years ago on which was interesting on um the looking at body size across all of canada like to, to say, do we need to update clothing size? <laughs> and and they found the same exact thing. Like these sizes don't really work. They're they're, they're rough approximations. No, nobody in, uh, in Canada had uh, an average body size. Um, they all have these jagged profiles. Well, you carry over that um, concept. And I always tried to use physical size because it's easy to sort of get your head around. It turns out that the research is very clear on that too. When you look at things like intelligence and other metrics, same thing, Multi-dimensionality. the correlations aren't there. Therefore, everybody's going to have a jagged profile. That alone means you cannot use averages to describe any one person. Period. Period. Like full stop. It doesn't work. Yeah, full Um, stop.
0: It doesn't work. And that's why using a SAT score or mm -hmm. an IQ test it, it doesn't reveal the jaggedness of the underlying individual because as you, you've got great graphs in the book of, you know, IQ and the di- various dimensions that are measured on that and how you can have identical scores, but yet it reveals so much different about two different people by looking at the sub, you know, the sub yep. So, and
1: if you can basically get to the same numeric score in the aggregate from almost infinite combination of sub scores, yeah. What yeah. does that tell you then? It doesn't like, tell what am you. Anything. I, yeah. What yeah. am I learning? Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it turns out it's only valuable if the game is just to select people and you don't even care. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just trying to do that, then, you know, to, to pretend that you fine. have the best yeah, people in your school. Yeah. 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 Um, so, the, so, but now, so when you start thinking about accepting that human individuality, the first thing that dark horses reveal, which I thought was just fascinating. In is, fact,
0: I'd, I'd say, Todd. Not accepting, but embracing.
1: Yeah. I mean, no, for yeah, sure. You just lean absolute, right into it. Which lean is,
0: into it, embrace it, you know, our individuality. Yeah.
1: yeah and yeah. I, I was shocked at, like, again, this is what I do for a living, <laughs> like, study individuality. The level of distinctiveness in terms of what truly motivates you. If you think about motives as things that compel action, that drive you forward, give right? you energy,
0: they give you energy. Yes. Yes. And so
1: we all know, it. we all know things that we feel motivated by and not the first step in, in, in making fulfillment a reality and converting it into excellence is truly understanding what motivates you. And in the book called them micro motives on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, we just got to get away from this idea that there's just this, this small handful of things that motivates everybody to the same or varying degree. universal motives, money, yeah, you know, money, status, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Competition. Stuff and what you found is, first of all, we are wildly individual in our motives, and they can be not just big universals, but incredibly specific. Like I, I to this day, could not believe, because I would say probably seventy-five percent of all the motives that we learned about from these dark horses, I don't believe. <laughs> like uh, I know intellectually, uh-huh. I'm like, sure, I guess that should, but it leaves me cold. Like I'm like, there's no way. That anybody is motivated by this? By this, you know, like, what, like,
0: what the hell is going on? Yeah, here? yeah, like I Sal know what Shapiro. you're talking about. Yeah,
1: it's, <clears throat> Sal Shapiro was like this this engineer that was super motivated by literally like manipulating objects with his hands. I'm like, uh, okay, like, how's that a motive? Like, I mean, really? Like, yeah. But yeah. It, sure enough, when you when you get out of spaces where you don't get to engage that, he's miserable and not terribly good at it. Um, mm-hmm. And you just see that composition. Um, And what I found is over and over again, especially when I talk to young people, it's like, listen, don't pass go <laughs> until you, you figure this out. And it's actually not it hard. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't require a lot of introspection. It's not like that. It's very hard. It's just about like asking yourself the, uh, the easiest path we've found so far for people to figure this out is think about the activities that you feel what you might describe passion for, right? And I just see passion as this experience in reaction to to doing something that lights up these motives of yours. But the thing is, is like, so like for example, I love football. Okay, well, there are a lot of motives that would lead you to actually care about that activity. So it's not enough to say I have a passion for football because if that's all I know is that passion level, the second I can no longer play football, like I have a crisis, right? Like, what do I do? And then I go flounder for a while. But if you do that one step lower and ask yourself why and do this little, like, what do I, what do I really feel passionate about? And why is that? And we've had people just document it, just, just spend a couple of weeks and just jot down these things and start to see the trends that emerge, right? Because you could love football for the competition, for being outside, for the, cooperation that's required you name it right granularity
0: is key here granularity
1: yeah and and once once you start to lock into those those are portable right so Mm -hmm. whereas i might not be able to play football anymore if it's the combination of competition and cooperation and it's like the team aspect it's physical well it's strategic well you know what i can now use that knowledge To go any number of places that on the surface of it will look completely unrelated Mm -hmm. but but i will plug into and have a really good shot at at both being fulfilled and being excellent at
0: yeah i i just hope this comes across this is so crucial because these things get stamped out by the standardization covenant and the pursuit of these things and you know we're aware of them and they're sort of percolating but unless you get intentional and 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 really thoughtful about them you know they just kind of remain often buried yeah uh, and
1: and like like for example for myself like one of them is actually a pretty big one so it's like they can be very granular it's like just whatever the the, the why answer to these passions are like this will seem kind of obvious but it really matters for me no matter what like i have to have control mm-hmm, like i i cannot mm-hmm. work for someone mm-hmm, <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. like like it's it's just, I can't. And, and like, um, and so what's been so helpful about it is I know that I'm miserable when I'm in those positions when ultimately someone else gets to decide uh, whether my ideas matter, whether I just... And so it's like, okay, don't put yourself... It doesn't matter. I mean, the ability to turn down significantly more money, it doesn't matter what you offer me. I'm not gonna accept it because I know that it would just be a matter of time for I'm miserable and I won't be terribly good at my job, and and I'll be out of the game. So, mm-hmm. so it's it's just getting that right is so important. And I will say, if you're a parent, like one of the best things you could do is model that for your kids. Mm-hmm. Right, talk about what it is you're enjoying. Talk about what you're not enjoying. Yeah. What's what's so frustrating at work and why, and 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 help them get the habit of of asking and answering those questions for themselves.
0: Yeah, sometimes the why, in my opinion, doesn't even matter. You know, it just mm. is. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, like, why am I motivated to do some of these things? You know, like, I, I mean, one of the silly micro motives that I have is it's really not silly, but you know, I the dishwasher, I, I I'm very, I'm a very organized. I mean, the dishwasher is a central point of conflict in the house, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and but I love being able to pull the knives out and stick them in. I, and it gets even deeper because I hate not being able to find things. I love, you know, to have that kind of an arrangement and that plays out in so many aspects, but I find that when I'm doing those sorts of things, I say to myself unconsciously, I love this. I love Mm -hmm. this. And that's, I've actually talked to my kids about that. When you hear yourself saying or feeling, God, I just love this. You know, those are serious signals. And and it gets at the point that you make so that's so important is when you're doing things that are in your motivational wheelhouse, it gives you energy and it yeah. doesn't suck energy away from you. It's really like an injection. And so is that
1: amazing? And it really to your, amazing to your point. Like I would I, I believe the only why that matters is getting beyond the, the aggregate passion. Once, yes. Once you fill it and you're like, wait, here's this thing that like for its own sake, just lights me up yeah you're right the why doesn't matter in fact you probably wouldn't what would the what would the answer be yeah well so how do you it's find like,
0: that answer yeah
1: yeah so now it's like no i just know this and i know whenever i'm doing things that involve this i get energy from it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and similarly when you know in the book i talked about like the game of judgment which is like you see somebody doing some job you're like who would ever want to do that and you think you just judge them but in reality it's revealing something on the opposite it's about side you. of you yeah, yeah that's like, right yeah what is it about that thing that you think is so terrible and then you can sort of reverse engineer that to be like well I know that I don't like that at all right yeah, and so yeah. this kind of game but again we don't teach people to think like this right yeah, because no. in the standardization covenant it literally doesn't matter <laughs> doesn't matter all. yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you know, and just to bring this home for my colleagues, just to give one example of how I experienced that, what I loved about surgery and operating was mastering and figuring out for me how to do an operation the most efficient, most effective way possible. And once I had mastered the exact needle angle, all the little details, and I could come in and do it almost without thinking. That was heaven. But then I was done. I I, I didn't want to do any more. I mean, I just was like, I've done the thing that I love, and that's to innovate. I love to yeah. think and innovate and build on things. And once I had mastered all the operations, it's kind of like, God, I, I can't do this for another 15 years, literally, you know? Yep. And I know other surgeons that feel the same way. It was, that's, just, that's just an example. The deeper micromotive is, you know, innovation, doing new things. Very important to me. And I've always been like that. Um, yeah
1: I, i'm right there with you it's like yeah. um it's it's there's a novelty aspect that mm-hmm. that the curiosity around the curiosity and the desire yeah. to master it
0: mm-hmm. where
1: the second that i'm like peak performance on something it, it's not even a gradual decline no like, it's it's over it's, 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 it's it over is, it is like the done <laughs> Like you went from this thing that is like lighting you up to be like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do
0: this anymore. Um, literally <laughs> literally and so that like, is me.
1: <laughs> and so you got it. So it's like, great. I, You are not changing that about yourself, right? No, like you got to so, accept it and embrace those environments embrace yeah, to be it, like, yes. look, so, so like in so many spaces that, that this is exactly the kind of micromotive that a serial entrepreneur would have, mm-hmm. Right they they want to just start companies they don't want to run companies they don't want to run them and they shouldn't they should no they shouldn't they wouldn't be good at it yeah how many people are good at starting things from scratch and then scaling them yeah very few
0: very few so very
1: and so that's that's great yeah it's i swear to you like if people just spent the time on this one piece
0: one piece
1: you'd just be shocked at what it does for your life just shocked
0: not only personally but you know the other piece is to embrace other people's jaggedness and and micromotives you know the tendency is to say well that's weird i mean what the hell is that about i mean why do you like that but it's actually something that if you use it as a leader or as a team member you can leverage these things for their benefit and for the enterprise's benefit i just really want to highlight that yeah
1: that's right and you think about i think it's an underutilized management aspect and huge like and even a talent recruiting thing which is so many people's motives are not being used they're not allowed to be discovered but your ability to help people be able to surface those things and make them productive in the context of work that you're going to have the most dedicated
0: dedicated loyal oh engaged employees they're not going anywhere
1: are you kidding me what like especially if you've been around the block and you know what it's like in every other standardized environment Yeah. To find a place that you feel like truly seen I mean like yeah. this is who seen. I am and yeah. I'm valued for it and not yeah. in the superficial like I check a bunch of boxes for people no. like this is me and, and me. you find me valuable and I am giving my best contribution as a result oh and, and what like this sounds like pie in the sky but I don't think it is no we can get to a place where this is the norm not the exception in society yeah in society, it's just nuts and bolts, brass tacks, it would be just better. (laughs) Like, if we're all if if work becomes not only something we're producing for, but it becomes a positive part of a broader fulfilling life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, that's on
1: offer now. So we can do that.
0: And that's why I'm so excited that you're here with me today. So I can hopefully begin this revolution in our in our world. So now we're going to go into the last three of the principles. Know your choices, your strategies, and ignore the destination.
1: Yep. So let's hit these real quick. So choice is pretty simple, which is, it seems like it should be obvious. But in the standardization covenant, you have very, very few obvious choice points Mm -hmm. for your life. Mm -hmm. It's funny because people think, oh, especially in free societies, are you kidding me? All you got is choices. I'm like, no, all you got is choices in the market. But Mm -hmm. when the stuff that matters... Like in school, in work, these kind of things. Actually, they're they, you know they try to hide those from you. But here's the thing about um, about dark horses and, and the lesson to learn on choice. Two things: one, like you always have a choice, and if you don't know what your choices are, you haven't looked hard enough, even if it That's means right. creating your own. Yes. Okay. Yes. And second, the thing that was most instructive to me, I think, that I've taken away of how I make choices from what I learned from dark horses was this in terms of understanding the options you have and which choice to choose when you have options they're almost never equal in terms of their fulfillment potential and you can kind of tell this feels like it would be such a better idea i want to do that this not so much that's only one half of of the equation as far as dark horses are concerned to make sure that's not catastrophically irresponsible <laughs>
0: like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you
1: think about could I live with the worst case scenario of making that choice, right? So when I had two kids and I was in graduate school and after like my choice, like landscape was a little narrower, right? Like I still have to feed my family. I still have to do things. That's not bad. Like that's just the reality. So what you're looking for is to optimize on the choice that gives you the highest fulfillment potential and that you could live with the worst case scenario. If you can't live with the worst case scenario, move on. Right. And you're trying to find to to optimize that way. To me, that makes every choice you make pretty safe. Right. And everyone thinks like you play the game of averages, like, well, what are the odds that you can go be a computer engineer in Silicon Valley or an NBA basketball player? Like that's not the right question Mm. because averaging over everyone who's ever tried is a bit like saying, what's the odds of someone getting a 0.9 GPA in high school and then being the honor student of the year in college is it's pretty low right but but that was not a risky choice for me and yeah. so it, it, it's really about making those choices based on a fit between your motives your individuality and the environment and making only those choices for which you could live with worst case scenario yeah you do that you're gonna be shocked at how just how great things turn out because it even really it's is a bad remarkable. choice yeah it's a bad choice you can live with it and you've learned a lot you've about learned. you've
0: learned you've learned yeah and the key thing that I keep coming back to in my head and when I talk to people about this you're making choices based on motives that are things that are motivating to you which gives you a huge leg up in the potential for success in that yeah. because of the yeah. energy and interest you know it's and exactly so it's not right. as risky As just taking a wild shot. Well, I'm gonna just open a flower shop. I think I'm interested in it, you know, and I'm gonna abandon this career. You know, it's not like that.
1: No, could you imagine competing against someone who literally loves what they're doing? Like, like I I think I always tell people right now is in the line of work I do, I love it so much. You're just not gonna outwork me. Right. That's half the battle. Like I like when I think of I go home, it's like, what do I do? I read a book about the stuff I care about. Yeah, same. I'm up in
0: four thirty in the morning reading about this stuff. Yeah, it's not it's it's not work. Yeah, and so no. it's like
1: I'm always going to be ahead of you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I, I just because yeah. it's 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 enjoyable. <laughs> so think about choices that way. Don't hoard your choices. Make them. Learn from them. Move on. You got to keep moving forward. But then at the end of the day, let's get to like know your strategies. Yeah. this is really critical. At the end of the day, to be to get fulfillment, you got to achieve stuff.
0: <laughs> like mm-hmm, you
1: mm-hmm. just can't go from choice to choice and uh, you get a bunch of hedonic pleasure. Blah blah. blah. Yeah, yeah, you gotta yeah. Achieve stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The most important thing, and this is this isn't just from from our work. This is this is pretty sound science. So we tend to think like, okay, we're talented, we're not, like, if I try something and it doesn't work, then I'm just not good at it. And yeah. so often we disconnect and we move on, right? I'm not good at this. The thing that dark horses just shocked me, but it was so cool, is they will stick with something for quite a while. And it'll look like they're not making progress but when you punch down and look at it they're not doing the same thing over and over again they're they're cycling through strategies with the assumption and they are correct that for any outcome you want there are always multiple strategies it's actually one of the the only laws in complex systems that we really have that apply to science individuality it's called it's called equifinality Right, and that's a good uh, cocktail party term you can use. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> so, so the idea is like, okay, you want to achieve this. It's not a question of whether you can. It's just cycling through. Find the right strategy. Clicks, you go. Right. One of my favorite things is, um, you know, my colleague Carol Dweck, who did like growth mindset. Her biggest complaint about this is sold like a million copies and never was. Oh, we're teaching kids growth mindset. Is it often gets taught as Oh no, intelligence is about effort, not fix, which is definitely true. And so just keep working harder. And she's like, that's not what they found. It's mm-hmm. it's literally the same thing. It's like, no, it's like, no, it's it's about effort. So this isn't working. Try something different, like try a different path in. So it's it's this is critical. Um, I can tell you, uh, it's you see it over and over again. I've seen it in my own life. Um, but we saw this in everybody we studied in the same exact narrow fields like the people that got to the same peak level of excellence had wildly different strategies for getting it done so yeah. it's just just know that there's never just one right way and if you care about it it's about exploring and trying different strategies and once you get that click you're good to go
0: and those strategies the one that clicks taps into your strengths and your that's jaggedness
1: right. right that's right yeah 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 I mean that's for me. that's this happened. Um, so when I was <laughs> finishing um, undergrad, had a good GPA, started entertaining the idea of of graduate school, which was the first of my family to ever do that, and I had to take the GRE, uh, which I'm mm-hmm. still terrible at standardized tests. I this is a things
0: really things. good example. Yeah, this is and, a very good and, example.
1: Yeah, and, and it was like mm-hmm. I was practicing, practicing, practicing. Got better at the quant, got better at the verbal, but back in the day it had that analytical reasoning section where they'd be like, Farmer John has four rows, has corn, peas. <laughs> I
0: almost and don't eat. want to listen to it. I can't oh, so it. brutal. It's so like torture. corn
1: can't be next to peas, yeah. and peas can yeah. only be in row two. And then they'd give you some question like, what's in column three, row two? And I'm like,
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I've got no right. idea.
1: And my the guy that was uh running the class that I was taking on Saturdays i got that job because he scored a perfect score on the Jerry's and he had a strategy for doing it. And it didn't dawn on me that it was a strategy. I just assumed it was the way you do it. Right. <laughs> like, and it was all done in his head. And so I was so frustrated. It, w- it was just comical. I was studying for him at my parents' house because we lived in like a 400 square foot apartment with two kids. Um, and it was like only a couple of weeks before I had to take the Jerry the for real and I had not scored higher than the 13th percentile in any of the practice things. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I am screwed. Like, it doesn't matter, I'm not going to grad school. Like, um, and I got really frustrated and I happened to like toss my pencil across the room as my dad walked in and yeah, that wasn't great. And he was like, what are you doing, man? Now, luckily (laughs) he's an engineer by training and I happened to tell him why I was upset and he walked over and he said, well, that's a degrees of freedom problem and i'm like i don't know what that means but like and he said (laughs) he said how are you doing it and i and and so he knew something about my jaggedness which is i have absolutely terrible working memory like i use my technology to offload that but if you if you told me to remember something well, i go get my car and go home after this and then let you know when i get home it's not happening unless i write it down
0: yeah
1: yeah um so he goes oh but there's a there's an easy visual way to do this and he he draws a grid for me and he shows me this little what I thought was a trick and it worked for the problem and I was like that that that's too good to be true tried on other problems it seemed to work and all the ones where I had answers in the back of the the test prep book it always worked so I went back to my uh teacher and I said hey my dad my dad told me this I, I don't know like and he goes huh well, I guess that works. I just never thought of it. And, and like, this
0: is a mentor that's tutoring you for the yes, exam with but, his
1: way that works for him. And it yeah. does work for him because yeah. he's got, and it turns out, really, phenomenal working memory. So, right. so flash forward a couple of weeks later, I take the GRE and I only missed one question on the analytical Amazing. reasoning. Yeah. It was yeah. By, it was my best score. And it's funny. So then everyone's like, Well, Todd's very analytical. I'm like, maybe, right? Or figured out the very right visual strategy. Yeah, yeah the right strategy turns out strength really visual. Is visual. yeah and and it just it just is so funny because for me that is literally a life-changing moment moment yeah of recognizing that it's not just about talent it's about strategy
0: yeah and
1: that there is always a right strategy for you given your individuality if you internalize that really believe that then you'll be shocked, right? You'll just be shocked at how good you could be at things. And it's really I,
0: remarkable. And I have so, to say, I mean, there was a time, you know, when I would have said, well, you just need to work harder, you know, and you can brush that off. But I've I'm I'm converted completely.
1: Yeah. And you're still gonna work yeah. hard. It's like yeah. it's like just work the right way. Like, work the right way. That's yeah, right. Put the time yeah. into figuring out yeah. the right strategy, not beating yeah. your head against the wall. Yeah.
0: Well the final Fourth thing for uh, dark horse principles is ignore the destination. And I think it might be a useful, I'm going to tell you my story here and Please. it's brief, you know, uh, and you know, I, I was a full on academic surgeon, you know, endowed chair, all the goodies. Uh, and then uh, after big back surgery and hip replacements, uh, got addicted to prescription narcotics. And I, and I, after I got out of treatment, I decided I was done because I didn't want to go back uh, to being that I I was done. I told you that I was tired of operating, you know, all these things that I was doing, I was burned out and a whole myriad of things. And when I was up at Hazelden, uh treatment center my counselor always it was badgering me you need to keep a gratitude journal and keep three things in it that you're grateful for every day and of course at the time i thought it was weak stuff it's not going to work for me i got bigger fish to fry here (laughs) well i get out i become a house husband which was very difficult uh from my personality at the time but i i it was a tremendous period of my life but one day my daughter sent me a video about gratitude the science of gratitude and I was like, holy mackerel, I was wrong about this. All right. So I dug up the research and I looked at the literature, read about this thing called self-compassion. And uh, I was like, what's that? And I, I said, well, I'm, that's kind of interesting. And I was curious because, you know, I, I, I felt like I hadn't lived properly before. And so I was looking for new ways to live. So I signed up for a retreat in self-compassion, and I find myself in a room with 60 women and four other men, putting my hand on my heart, talking about my feelings, all of which were way out of left field for me. But it felt right. I was interested in it. I felt there was something there. Long story short, I keep doing these things. I go to meditation retreats. I'm doing this, that, and the other. I'm reading constantly. I had no purpose or no plan. I had no goals. I just felt like this was felt good. So I was doing it. I had no idea where it would lead. And then ultimately, it took me to this position where I'm interviewing Todd Rose. Uh, You know, I'm coaching surgeons. Um, I'm a thought leader in this arena. And it was literally, I had no destination in mind, you know. And to me, it's almost a perfect example of how Mm -hmm. by following things that you're interested in and doing it step, 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 experimenting, you know, whatever navigating your way towards something that really matters to you uh
1: that, i don't know that, what are your that's, thoughts that's a perfect that's a perfect story it's exactly right and it, it, it's yeah. a hard one to let go of right because in a standardized covenant with so few choice points yeah you, it's like listen you got to decide i mean like we we asked the little kids what are you going to be when you grow up like and then it's like well i gotta figure this out because you kind of do right mm-hmm. like yeah you do and and the the thing is is it doesn't really work that way and and it's pretty simple to think about like there's so many contingencies tied to that long term destination right so many things
0: so many things that are supposed to fall into place and you don't know what's going to happen yeah
1: yeah and if they don't and it's like and how do you know that that's really Mm -hmm. what you want are you you Mm -hmm. wanting to be a lawyer because it's the only thing you know and your uncle's a lawyer and like your mom and dad
0: want you to be one or whatever right exactly
1: and then you know never mind the fact that now ai is going to come in and eat away at most of it he's like you never know and so what happens is that people that end up picking a destination and driving towards it, it's funny, you'd like to think that they are the ones that usually get there. They're not actually, they're not, they, they, they're they definitely the most miserable. And it's the, so the flip side is and And in the book, we talked about this from a computational neuroscience standpoint, their entire approaches to how you solve intractable problems computationally, like this gradient descent, which is like, you can literally mm-hmm. find the peak of anything. Mm-hmm. Without ever knowing where it is, you take a step, you analyze the surround, you take another step, right? It's that process. Like
0: That process, yes.
1: Because the other thing that destinations do that are so corrupting is they take your eye off the ball, which is right now, today, today. You, have choi- you have choices to make. Today, yes. Yep. And those choices are not equal in terms of their fulfillment potential. Mm-hmm. And they take. you have to be thoughtful. You got to think about those things. And so it to me, it's like it's not a you still can have short-term goals, you still try to achieve stuff, but it's like this is the landscape of reality for you right now. Make good choices and Mm -hmm. the path will be the path. And Mm -hmm. like it sounds so crazy, but it's like I think actually obsessing about the destination might be the most disastrous thing you could do. I agree. I agree. And so, and like to your own story, it's like. If you tried to game out a destination that would have been this, it wouldn't have been this, right? No. Never no. in a million years. Never in and a million so,
0: years. Yeah.
1: And now, and think about what you're, like, it's crazy. Like, think about what your life would be lacking right now. Yeah. So, if I had
0: just stuck with the old.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's like, or, or like, okay, I'm going to sit back. What am I going to do? I'm going to make some choice. I'm just going to drive towards it. And I'm going to work really hard because that's what I do. And it's just like, Instead, you 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 intuited this kind of approach, and and here you are. And I I actually honestly don't think there's a better story for that. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Todd, I mean, you've given us so much of your precious time, and I I just sincerely cannot thank you enough for this and for bringing all this to the world and bringing it to uh, my colleagues and me here uh, today. A really huge honor and so appreciated and. Uh, again, just a huge thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. It was such a great uh pleasure to talk with you.
0: Yeah. And where can people find out more about you? Where can they go, you know, search for yeah. your work? Yeah.
1: Yep. So um I have like toddrose.com Um, all of our uh research and work as a think tank is at populist.org. that's P-O-P-U-L-A-C-E dot mm-hmm. org. Um mm-hmm. that's that's probably Good. the easiest.
0: Great. And I I everybody needs to get the book Dark Horse, in my opinion, and and adjust that. And, you know, the final note, I just want to really pitch how your work has changed my relationship with my children in such a dramatic way, because I see them very differently now, instead of projects to be gotten through the standardization covenant, I see them as the individuals, the with a jagged personality, and how can I help maximize that as a as a mentor and a father you know so really really important stuff for our children too so again thanks so much todd thank you this has been the resilient surgeon a podcast brought to you by the society of thoracic surgeons thank you so much for listening if you like this podcast please rate it five stars and let your friends trainees and colleagues know about it on social media you can use the hashtag, be your best self. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.